Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon. And today's episode, episode four, is taken from the archives of an older podcast I did a couple years ago now. And I have to apologize for the quality of the audio. I was trying to do something different with my audio recorder and not use the same microphones I normally use when I'm in the bars and pubs and stuff like that up in Portland. Anyhow, the guest that I interview today on this podcast is my brother, Adam McMahon, and he's the art director at Red 5 Studios, and they are putting out a game called Firefall. Let's take a listen to the intro cinematic for the game right now. Alerting authorities there. The casualties in the blast zone look to be close to 100%. What? That can't be. Arrestes, is Amelia still living? Receiver, get me those thrusters, now! We've got a five-second burn left in maximum power. That should get us clear before to leave us. Negative, Mark Light. If you ignite that burn, Sin is projecting a 95% chance you hit Rio. Ready the burn. Give me manual control. Sir, if you do that, 1.2 million people will die. I'm well aware of that. Now give me control. Arrestes, you have full control. Initiating burn in five, four, four, three. Please, please, don't do this. Firefall. <laughs> it doesn't quite end like that, but yeah, you can check it out at firefall.com. Okay, so let's get on with the interview and hope you enjoy. What's interesting, we're not in either Hollywood or Portland. We are actually in San Diego. This is the week the infamous uh, Comic-Con starts, and um, although I won't be attending, I've, t- I've attended many years, and today I have a special guest. Um, happens to be someone I've known my whole life. Someone I've known, and he's known me my whole life. Wait up, wait. He's known me his whole life. Anyway, it's my brother, my younger brother, Adam McMahon, and he's the art director at Red 5 Studios in Irvine, California, and they are making a game called Firefall. So welcome to the show, Adam. Hi, glad to be here. That's it. Yeah, you just right. <laughs> So wait, are you going to Comic-Con this week? I am going to Comic-Con this week. I'll be going tomorrow uh, for the whole day. Oh, really? Okay, cool. Hold on a second. Let me move this closer. Sure. All right. <clears throat> um, yeah, so anyway, so, you know, my podcast is about... The, my journey going from Southern California to the Northwest and see whether or not I can make it as a filmmaker up there and just sort of kind of give everybody an idea what it's like, to, the changes um, living there from, from being from California to, to Oregon and then all the differences of trying to make it um, in, you know, making a film or making the film business there. It's not, or making it as an, an independent filmmaker up there. So... Um, but yours is unique because you're an art director for video games, and I know a lot of people um, are interested in both, you know, uh, fields. So people that are interested in film are generally interested in in the world of video games, and sometimes there's a crossover. Um, vice versa. Vice versa. And I think that's funny because I mean, obviously, we know in the video game world is that any any video game that's normally made f- based off a movie title is usually dog crap, you know, or, you know, it's like, it's like 
for gamers, they kind of know that's like, you know what? This thing was probably made too quickly based off some paid license from the studio, and it just rehashes some old engine that's been used over and over with just different artwork on it. So what's interesting, what I know about uh, Red 5 Studios is that they are an offshoot of Blizzard, right, of the World of Warcraft guys. Is that correct? Correct. The StarCraft guys. And you've been with them, what, for two, three years now? Uh, Four years, actually. Oh, my God. Four years. So four years and counting. Yep. <laughs> but your game is due out the end of the year, isn't that correct? Or the first phase of it? End of the year. End of the year. Okay. Yeah. So for people that don't know, um, I have to assume that most of my audience, which is basically our mom, the only person that listens to this show, um, imagine she has no idea or <laughs> have any idea what um, games are about. Um, they they know the difference between a movie and a game. So really, for the layman. Can you give us a rundown of what Firefall is all about? Yeah, Firefall is a game that takes place in future Earth. Uh, the year is roughly around 2233. Uh, what happened it was that we had discovered some uh, technology uh, that... Actually, let me roll back there. Um, I guess let me break it down to more in simpler terms. Uh, so it takes place in Future Earth. It's a sci-fi game um, that uh, is essentially a third-person slash first-person shooter. Um, Should I go in blank out there? No, I'm trying to figure out what's the best way to explain this. <laughs> well, let me ask you, like, yeah, who, so, who came up with the story? Because it's about what I can and what I cannot say. So oh, okay, okay. Well, don't <laughs> yeah, just say what you can say, and or about what you don't say. But uh, let me ask you a question, like. Like who came, who came up with the premise? Like, like the premise. That- I mean, basically, the way things tend to work at Red Five Studios is that uh, the entire studio gets involved with everything. Uh, we we believe in in self empowering uh, the employees and having a game that truly is something that was divulged and created from the entire studio and not just a couple of minds up in upper management. So, with that being said, you know the studio was created by Mark Kern, the CEO. Um, of Red 5 Studios, he was the team lead on, uh, at Blizzard working on World of Warcraft, he worked on StarCraft, okay. and Diablo, and some others. Um, you know, the initial inception of the game has changed so drastically that it's hard to say, like, well, where did the original idea come from? Because the original idea has changed so much that, you know, it's now really ownership uh, of the entire studio. Right. Uh, we... We essentially started off with something that was probably a little closer to what we are currently at uh, as far as the conception of it, and then we deviated quite vastly based off of you know a lot of trial and error, a lot of iteration on art styles, looks, uh, gameplay, game mechanics, different games that have come out um, that were kind of either direct competition or just had something about them that we were interested in. Um, but we really quickly realized that we started kind of going off track of what we were trying to accomplish. So we kind of reined everything back in, uh, rescoped the size of the project, rescoped a lot of different things, and started narrowing our focus down and figuring out, okay, what is it that we really need to deliver? What is the type of game that we want to make? Um, and then just went from there. Okay. So I, you know, what we'll do is I'll post links to... Uh, um uh, Firefall and, and Red 5 on the site so people can get a better look at um, what the game is all about. Now, from a f- first uh, 
perspective of like what I saw of the game, of, uh, of the trailer and stuff like that, um, it definitely looks like you know not a first-person shooter, but it looks like a shooter game that looks like it has team um, co-op capabilities. And it's you know if somebody who doesn't really know, they might hear, you know heard of Halo and you mm-hmm. know something similar to that. So where does it where does that sort of different differentiate between those two? Like I said, if I, if mm-hmm. I just said I'm talking, I'm not a gamer. I'm just looking at it for what it is. I'm like, oh, it looks like. First of all, it looks really good. I mean, the the, the artwork is really clean, sharp. The characters are pronounced. Um, you know, a unique style there, and, and not just because you're involved, but you know, I'm kind mm-hmm. of. Yeah, no, because if, if 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 you know if if I was trying to be myself, I would totally rag on you, but I can't. So <laughs> that means that you guys did a really good job. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. No, the I mean the the art the art is the first thing you see, and it's something that we spent many you know we spent many years on really just iterating on and trying to hone in on what we what we felt was not only a, something that was unique and attractive to a global market, but. Uh, that really kind of just struck a chord with us. So, you know, at first we started off doing the art style that geared more heavily towards the Western influence. And Western influence tends to be closer to photorealism. You know, you take games like Call of Duty, you know, even Halo, the way it's rendered and stuff like that, uh, they they tend to use a lot more photo sampling and and rely more heavily upon real-world influences. And one of the problems with that is that we're trying to appeal to a global market, including Asia and Europe uh, um, and, uh, you know, various other places uh, as well. But the Asian market has a very distinct style and and flavor as far as what they want their games and what they want the games to look like. So how do you do something that appeals to both markets? You know, you have to do a lot of research, do a lot of studying, do a lot of different practice. Um, There's not too many games that really do have a global appeal like that. So taking what does work over in the uh, Asian market, taking what works over in the, the Western market, and trying to find some sort of homogenization that actually uh, is going to, you know, sing was really difficult. Uh, to our benefit, some stuff happened to come out that hit that mark that we felt really um, was what we were looking for. And, you know, we got lucky. And we, we happened to not only, you know, have this come in, come into our view at the right time, but um, we were also able to capitalize on that. We even got one of the artists that was uh, responsible for um, some of the artwork that we had seen that did happen to fall into this category. Oh, so, really? Yeah. Oh, cool. Are you able to say who it is? Or well, yeah. I mean, I, I've I've mentioned before in some of my other. Uh, Interviews and blog posts, just that. Well, first of all, let's say that the other interviews and blog posts are people that actually read and listen to that stuff. Right. Like this one, like <laughs> nobody's going to hear it, you know. And it's funny you talk about the eight, like sort of the more global style appeal of the of the artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, I say it's more definitely more stylized. It's not on the realistic end, and it's uh, but it's not necessarily cartoony either. It's right. a weird kind of hybrid of it. And uh, I only have to ask you, for the Asian markets, have you made all the characters with big round eyes? <laughs> I only say that because I had, we had friends that went to China on a, on, like, on a tour. And so it was like all these Americans on this tour in China. And their tour guides kept saying, you know, as they were directing them to one thing to another, kept telling all the Americans, 
okay, now open your big round eyes and look over here. <laughs> so, so they just kept cracking up about the big round eyes. And then, you know, Japanese anime was like, you know, mm-hmm. the eyes are so, so pronounced. So I don't know whether well, that had any influence in any, any, any of the stuff you guys <laughs> No, you know, there's, there's, if you were to look at it straight on, you would see some some Eastern influence in the actual like the tech and the armor designs. Um, you know, where you have like the the enlarged boots and feet and just uh, you know, kind of anime-ish looking armor designs. Um, but we've kind of homogenized that with the Western style as well, with some of the integration of our, our actual tech paneling and, and the way things um, work. Uh, and the way the shape language is set up. But as far as the actual Asian influence goes, to be honest with you, some of our characters do have actually very large eyes. <laughs> Normal. <laughs> so it's um, I called it out. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's not as noticeable because they don't take up half the face. You know, it's, it's one of those things where we've taken them and pulled them back just a little bit, but they're still very large for human standards. Well, you really should just make, like, one dude with, like, two, just two eyes. That's the character, and his name is American Joe. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> anyway, so what is um, you know again? So it's a it's a from just like the outside perspective, it just looks like sort of a shooter game. It's, it looks right. very polished, but where does it differ um, right from sort of the the competition or the, the games out there that we've seen before? Those the sort of it, it's not first person; it'd be a third person shooter. Right? Well, you can switch freely between third person and first person. Okay, that's so the reason go. why I mentioned third person and first person. Is uh, originally the game was going to be strictly third person, um, but we we added the first person element to it because you know most people tend to play shooters in first person, right. uh, especially the hardcore shooter players. Now our game is a team based action shooter and. That's you know when I'm going into uh, your question as far as you know what is the game to uh, to the average consumer out there, yeah. um, it is a shooter game you know in likeness of like Halo or you know there's some I guess you could call, it, call of Duty is a little bit on the more realism side, um, and the thing that we offer that those games don't uh, is kind of more along the lines of a shooter slash MMO homogenization. Uh, what I mean by that is that we have progression, and some of those games have progression as well. Call of Duty has progression uh, when you play online. Uh, it's done in a little bit of a different way. Our game also deals a lot with um, army tech, and, and what I mean by that is that kind of like MMOs have with guilds, you know, we have what mm-hmm. are called armies, so people will get together and they'll form these, you know, oh, okay. these corporations or the, these armies. Um, of a bunch of different members that they're playing with online. And through those armies, you'll have different tasks and resource collection, which is another part of the game that you don't see in other shooters. So part of the the appeal to the game is that you are not only exploring a vast open world, which is um, another unique aspect of our game, but you're going out and you're doing things that are trying to help improve your actual army which in turn will help improve your individual character i mean is it it's is it like um you know i never really i never played world of warcraft i I started playing starcraft a little bit once before Mm -hmm. but with that it reminded me of gosh you know dating me but like when we we had um go back to dungeons and dragons when you know i never played that just kidding maybe i played it once in a while but anyways we had dungeons and dragons where you had these adventures and you would have you know, your little group that you would go on. And then we did Wizardry on the Apple mm-hmm. TV. 
and there was um, you know games just progressed from there and then uh, so like you know World of Warcraft or EverQuest became mm-hmm. sort of like this second life or this virtual reality um, but you get to create this character and then you would have you know st- all these strength points and you know magic points or whatever it is and you would go explore this endless world mm-hmm. in, in a virtual environment and, so, and people got pretty addicted to that because they could live and explore and play out these fantasies that you know that existed way back when when people were playing Dungeons and Dragons and they didn't they were just using their imagination and you know um, in terms of just die and the little Peter characters and mm-hmm. the little maps they drew out so obviously is this sort of is uh, Firefall kind of like okay we're going to take that aspect of, say, like, EverQuest, but you know what? We're going to make the, the action even more intense with, with more of the shooter aspect of it. Well, I mean, to be honest with you, the shooter portion of the game is the primary focus. Okay. The, the longevity appeal is that um, in likeness to games like Team Fortress 2, uh, which to the common player or to the non-gamer out there they're not going to know what that is <laughs> but it is it is something that had some uh, some influence on the design of our game uh, Team Fortress 2 is a team based game and it's a team based shooter that uh, is just basically a pure shooter you know you had a handful of maps you got to play on you'd go in you'd join up and it would queue you with other people that would be playing against another group of people that were queued up and you'd have different objectives depending on the map type it was uh, Basically, with with our game, you know, the primary focus is very similar. It's still a shooter at heart. Uh, The core of the game is going to be around the combat and around actually playing against other players. The bulk of longevity will be from, you know, player versus player interaction and and basically trying to climb those ladder boards uh, to be the best uh, at either your class or just the best overall. Um, But integrated into that, of course, is this rich open world that we have, which allows players to explore content without playing against other players, Um, to go and see, you know, the world that we've created, uh, which, you know, what Firefall is, is it takes place on Earth. Mm -hmm. And it's about this cataclysmic event where uh, the melding, um, which is this basically evil entity, has come from a different dimension and entered into our atmosphere and started consuming the planet. And, you know, what the humans have had to do is use their technology and their resourcefulness to basically fight back the melding. And it took a while to get the technology to fight it back. Is there any, like, landmarks that would people go, oh, my God, we're fighting New York City. Check that out. But it's, like, totally, like, post-apocalyptic. Right. Word, but it's, like, you know, <laughs> post-everything screwed up. Um, we do plan to have uh, some what we call old-world assets. In there, okay. which will kind of distinguish different landmarks, um, but for the most part, you know, the world will overall actually feel almost like an alien planet. You know, it's going to be very lush, very vibrant. Uh, you know, you're going to have some whimsical plants in there, and, and yet some very you know ominous and dangerous looking things too. But uh, you know, color is the one thing we didn't want to shy away from, which just happens to be the tendency of the majority of games today they happen to have much you know very bland palettes a lot of grays and browns um and that was something we definitely wanted to to change about how games are made so so okay it's a little bit more punch in the color and the contrast because it is vibrant yeah as opposed to like you said um like a more desaturated um gray toned you know um save a prior ryan type style of look you know 
So that's cool. Um, now, obviously, I know, you know, I've been watching you on this project for a long time, and you've been just working around the clock. So, uh, and so you guys have a launch or a beta launch coming up at the end of the year? Um, we do have, we will have a beta. Uh, no date has been announced or determined as of yet. But, uh, you know, when it does, it'll, you know, we definitely want to make sure that we get people in. And, you know, people that are on the forums are a bit more aware because we keep that pretty... Okay. um, We're we're pretty transparent as a company. Yeah. So we like to keep people informed, keep them informed of what's going on with the company, keep them informed of what we're developing. Um, And as far as, like, the beta program, you know, basically when we know and have a better idea of when we plan to do things like that, we (laughs) will, you know, we'll let them know. Yeah. We have um, my brother's dog Cody, which is um, what is it? Half Chow, half Half what? Chow, half Shepherd. Half Chow, half Shepherd. Uh, he's just uh, panting and putting his head right in my lap. Anyway, so <laughs> is it too hot for you? It's a little hot down here. <laughs> oh, no, he's just being needy. Wants oh. attention. So. Um, yeah, it's funny about the the video game industry because you know we worked together um, at PlayStation for a while, and you know I was in the movie department, so I never uh, was 100 percent totally in the game development. I was always mm-hmm. kind of the fringe, supporting what they call the fluff. So it was never quite the most important thing about the game. You know, in in movie making, really the core of movie making is the story. Is so you have a solid story, then the rest of it will just kind of come into place to, to some extent. Mm-hmm. And I always felt like in games, the core is gameplay, you know, mm-hmm. because we've seen a lot of great game or not great game. We've seen a lot of games that have gorgeous art, but the programming uh, might be shabby, or the programming is solid, but the reality is, is the game design and the gameplay is just boring, or it's it's been done before. Mm-hmm. Whereas some game. Uh, that has, you know, kind of shoddy artwork or just sort of elementary artwork has this, un, you know, unyielding sort of um, addictive gameplay. And that's the that's sort of the key to, at least in my perspective, the world of games, you know. I don't know if you agree or not. Like, No, I mean, the artwork only does so much to help pull you into the game. Uh, you know, being an artist, it's you always want to make sure that it's something that people are pleased with on the long haul, but... You know, the reality is is that the the gameplay is what makes a difference. If a game and you know, I mean, depending on the game type, some some games actually do kind of um make their mark based on their story. Mm-hmm. But those are more along the lines of adventure games where story is what drives the whole entire game, so no, that makes true. a big difference. Um but in most cases the, the gameplay is key. I mean if the gameplay isn't fun, it doesn't matter how beautiful it looks, people are gonna put the controller down or, or what have you and, and that that'll be it. No one's gonna keep playing it. But yeah. You know, so I just felt like, you know, the graphics can continue to get better and better, but at a certain point, you know, the um the consumer base is so savvy that they'll know, like, you know, I'm just kinda of bored of this game. It's just not or it's buggy or I'm just I'm, it's not really challenging me, it's not engaging enough or something. Mm-hmm. Now it's funny I always felt this way about like video game, the video game business, um, where people are like, you know, from the outside, like, well, how does it all work? Like, how does the industry work? And you know, um, you have video games of all types. You, um, 
Um, you've got uh, obviously Firefall is, is not going to be on a console. It's going to be on online, right? It's online PC uh, and it's free to play. So everybody yeah. will be able to download it and play it without having to spend a dime. Right. Not Mac ready yet. Just PC. Just online. PC. Okay. So, uh, but you know, there's console games. There's uh, now there's app games. Like you know, they're just the, the app world is. I felt has definitely opened up like the small um, developing developers. Like the because what we know about the console world and the big PC world is sometimes it takes like way too many people up to like 200 plus people mm-hmm. to make a game and back in the you know the day of like PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2 that I mean the PlayStation 1 was small teams of like 15 people you yep. know so the the world of app uh, games uh, seems to be back to that 5 to 10 15 man team you yep. know now I don't know if it's your perspective, but do you think, like, um, if you were going to start a video game company, I always felt like, you know what, because the movie industry, what they do is they'll look at, like, the credits, like, who the producer is or who the writer is or who the director is. Mm-hmm. And usually that's who they feel is the most uh, creative or the most dominant person, uh, the, the most powerful person uh, to look to get to. Now, game producers are different in a sense that sometimes... Um, a lot of them came from um, quality assurance or what we call game testers, where they're just uber, you know, game geeks that just would play, gamers that would play games. They know everything about games, and so they started off as maybe being a lead tester, and then they moved over to an assistant producer, where they just sort of managed the flow of the um, uh, the development of the game. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes they get to be producers, um, but not of them. A lot of them have sort of a uh, a background in like management, just general management, or or have a background in um, like programming, you know, and so they might have a producer or a game designer might have these ideas, but they're sort of limited because unless their programming staff, their lead programmers and whatnot, can deliver what they want, they're almost helpless, you know, almost powerless to some extent. I mean, this is, again, my perspective. Right. And I almost feel like if you're going to start a company, the first thing you do is make sure you find, you know, a really good programmer. And whoever you have as your programmer, your lead programmer, is to understand um, what your engine is. And for those who may not know what the engine is, it's like, um, for instance, there might be a company making a video game that specializes in race cars, you know, simulations. Mm-hmm. So the engine is a lot of the um, the physics and the dynamics of what it feels like to to be in a you know a race car you know driving down the street. Well, that all the programming that went in to build sort of the core the the infrastructure of of those dynamics that engine are much different than if you're going to be playing something like Halo or um, um, or, or MMO, which is a ma- massive multi um, massive multiplayer online online. So that's so. You know the the structure of those games, or like something like Sims. You know th- that engine doesn't apply to like a racing car game. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to find out what engine you have, or what you know what engine your programmer can have. And what I understand too is sometimes you know game companies starting up, you know sometimes have to like acquire an engine that's sort of already pre-built because they just don't have the re- they don't have the development times the cycle to to build that up. So. Well, to the the reality of it, I mean, generally when you're you're starting up a new studio, especially for games, um, you know, having a programmer is definitely important. Uh, the first thing you have to do is come up with the idea of what you're going to make. Because if you don't know what you're going to make, 
then you're just going to be fumbling around with what you're trying to figure out what you need. Yeah. So what coming is, up with the idea is kind of the first part, and that can be done by anybody. It could be done by, you know, if whoever decides to start the company or wants to, you know, have an idea of what the game should be, you know, is the one that comes up with that. Um, but sometimes they can't find the right pr- uh, programming staff or the, the, the quality programmers to even uh, make that idea come to life. Like, you know... Like I was saying, it's like, I have this idea for a game, but I realize my programming staff is totally incapable of delivering that to me. It's usually not that difficult. Um, you know, you as far as engines go, you almost always pick out an engine. Um, as far as engines go, you almost always pick out an engine that's going to suit your needs. Um in most cases, you'll get trial versions of uh, several engines, and you'll mm-hmm. do test beds with each one of them and see which one kind of looks like it's going to fit the bill. Um, and, of course, you have to factor in costs and everything like that because they're not cheap. Um, yeah. Well, it's it's funny because I remember the um, the creator of Mario Brothers, or Donkey Kong, mm-hmm. you know, I, I forget his name. Um, the, I'll, I'll look it up and, you know, post it later. But anyhow, the <laughs> he mentioned about what they did was their their philosophy was they looked at the technology they had or the capabilities of what they had in front of them and then they designed a game around that you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. where I've in the past we've seen uh, game development teams where we had somebody who was you know creatively designing this massive insane world and game but then when he looked at the staff that was given to him you know it's like he you know he was he was they were they were doomed to fail as opposed to if he maybe looked at you know what was given to him to to Mm -hmm. make the game uh or what their capabilities were and then maybe designed a game or adjusted his vision based off that they would have made may have been more successful i don't know if you agree or not but Uh, i mean you know, speaking like based on along those lines, it, it's the times have changed. Um, there really isn't technology that's not available to you to do whatever you want to do. That's the thing. So, you know, surrounding yourself with the right staff, of course, is important. But knowing the idea of what you want to make, and then figuring out, you know, and then going through the arduous process of actually finding the right people, because, you know. Having hired several people myself um, and being a part of the hiring process over the last four years, uh, it's a long process when you're trying to find the right, the exact right people. And that's what, you know, Red 5 has done. We've worked very hard, not just to find the people that have the talent and the skill sets, but to find people that fit our culture. And the culture is a big part of our studio. And I think it's also what helps make us click as a studio to make sure that we can deliver the game that we're trying to make. And it's not that large of a studio, too. I mean, no, we're actually I mean, comparatively just to barely over 50 people. Yeah, and that's, that's relatively small compared to what the average next generation game is, what, three, 400 people plus, or maybe, you know? Yeah, I mean, right now the average next generation game is. You know they're they're pushing close to two hundred people, anywhere between a hundred and two hundred people. Um, right, and it's that's a lot of people. Yeah, and, mean, and to give it perspective, it was only a few years ago where you know a game like we said before, a game development team was only about fifteen twenty people. So, mm-hmm. well, that's a that's a good segue for so for, for a lot of people who are not listening. Let's say for the one person who might stumble across this podcast. Um, what advice would you give to somebody who who wants to break in, like you know, an animator? You know, you know, kids are like, oh god, 
Well, you have two kinds now. You have, I think, like kids who are going, I want to make video games. And what does that mean when they say they want to make video games? They're probably a kid that wants to, um, not that any kid are listening to this, but maybe some parent would and tell their kid. <laughs> it's like, um, what they might be thinking, like, I want to be a game designer, you know, or like, oh, I want to be an artist or an animator in, uh, in the game, in the game world. And so after all the years that you've been in the game world, what advice, or obviously if you've been in, trying to hire people, you've probably seen things that work and don't work, mm-hmm. uh, especially portfolio um, uh, perspective. But can you give any like in, insight about a hiring um, manager, what you would be looking for? Yeah, um, I and, mean... And advice to like young students, you know? So it, it's interesting, you know, that you said like, I've I've seen it all. I've seen uh, kids straight out of college that have applied. Uh, I've seen twenty-year veterans apply, um, and you get quite a different uh, spectrum of skill sets and um, and what have you as far as uh, the people that apply. And and what I find interesting is that what I didn't have back when I was learning three uh, D, learning how to get into games and and uh, make video games. Uh, we didn't have schools and classes and stuff that basically taught you a lot of the stuff you needed. We didn't have all these online tutorials and forums that had all the information that you pretty much need to do this stuff. So right now, the competition is actually that much more fierce because of that. You know, you had a much smaller select group of people that were trying to learn how to get into this industry, um, you know, 15, 16 years ago, like when I did. And right now, everybody's trying to get in, and all of the information they need is out there. I mean, on the Internet, you can find everything you need to know uh, on how to model, texture, UV, bake normal maps, uh, the whole gamut, animation, basically any information you want on any of the 3D modeling packages out there. Um, and what my suggestion is is to, to definitely you know keep on that, keep up in the forums, look at all that stuff, practice every day. Um, Keep building up your portfolio, but one of the most important things that I see lacking in a lot of uh, the teaching from schools today is the basic fundamentals. Uh, what most schools tend to teach you is how to make your portfolio look good, and what they lack uh, in their tutelage is actually the basic fundamentals that make things work properly. So, you know, practice good edge flow, practice good modeling techniques, uh, making sure your meshes are very clean and work for animation. Uh, if you're an animator, um, really learn the ins and outs of everything. Don't just be specialized in animation. Learn how to build your own rigs. Learn how to do IKFK. Um, you know, practice the basic animations, walking, running, uh, different emotions, uh, making sure you have a good sense of gravity. Um, there's really all the information you need is out there uh, on the Internet. And the best part is, is it's free. You yeah. Know? It's the same thing in the, in the world of um, film and independent filmmakers now. It's uh, these kids coming out of high school. I mean, um, they know so much about uh, making videos and, and getting it posted online. And, and, you know, the cameras have gotten so much better. So production and all this stuff has gotten so much better. But what they lack, a lot of them do, is just sort of the life experience or just the ability to really craft a... A solid story. So again, the basis of the film is is a solid story, and you can see a lot of young people just sort of exploring the visuals, you know, and and 
not quite exploring the story end of things. And I guess that would be the same on a, a small scale, the, um, the video game world, you know, mm-hmm. um, because it takes so many parts, like programming and art uh, and design to, to make a game, especially for to, to sort of traditional console or, or online or type of game. But that's what the, the, the world of app games for the, you know, the Android and the iPhone are just opening up so much for these weird, quirky, quirky games, you know, mm-hmm. that have different gameplay and you know, sort of flash-based art. So, and actually, there's a there's a website called GameSalad.com that for uh, you can sort of design your own game based off all these tools. Like you would, you pay, I think you pay like a hundred bucks to use their technology, mm-hmm. and so you can use. Um, like whatever little engine they have, like a, like a, a Tetris model or a bubble game, you know. But you can use the artwork that they have mm-hmm. to sort of redesign your own game, and you could post whatever game you create onto, a, a, you know, submit it to iTunes and uh, or Apple for the permission to get it up there to be sold as an app or free download or whatever. But they also give you an opportunity to upload your own artwork if you just want to like lay it over, skin it over existing games, you know? Hmm. So already there's there's signs of like the layman, somebody like myself, who may be able to um, craft their own um, graphics and artwork but don't have the programming knowledge or have an understanding of the, the, the game engines. But if somebody gave you sort of a model, your own creativity could maybe look at that and kind of <clears throat> use the tools that were given to them and make something very basic. Obviously, it wouldn't be very um, complex because you would need you know further programming knowledge. But it does give an opportunity uh, to, to reach the masses that, that may not have been there before. So, yeah, it was funny about you said about the kids and sort of the basic foundation. What about just like basic um, drawing skills? I remember a lot of artists that we got, you know, they learn how to sort of do all their artwork in the computer. But when you saw their actual drawing skills or just um, art, basic art skills and understanding of contrast and perspective and, and shapes and so on, and just, you know, just that kind of um, mm-hmm. basic knowledge, they... They weren't very good at all, so I don't know if that has if, you, if you've seen that has any major impact on some artists. You know, to be honest with you, I used to think it did, um, and I do think it's still a, a huge benefit to have the traditional skills along with the the 3D skills. But I have seen some very good 3D modelers that can can build amazing things in 3D, and it's proportionately correct, and everything looks amazing. That can't draw a lick. And so it's kind of, it's very interesting. I mean, they work great from concept, so they have really good kind of translation of 3D spatial uh, skills from 2D concepts, but... Um, it's almost like a mathematic model. Yeah, for, for whatever reason, they can't actually draw it themselves. Interesting. Um, you know, do I think it's 100% necessary? No. Uh, not anymore. Do I think it helps you 100%? Yes. Yeah. I remember I did a lot of compositing, so in the film world and graphics, it's like, you know, you would take a lot of these, when we did pre-rendered movies of 3D stuff, uh, you would take a lot of um, 3D elements, you know, and then we'd have to composite or compile it all together in the compositing programs. And I found that my art background in fine arts helped a lot because a lot of times you didn't have, um, 
like the actual 3D renders didn't come out 100% the way you kind of hoped it would. Mm-hmm. So you do your color correction, you would do your effects, you would, you would fine-tune these tricks. And because, you know, just some, some basic painting um, background I had, I was able to apply that to the world of compositing. And it was really sort of painting in the compositing uh, um, world. And I felt like, wow, that if in the, the best compositors, com, the best compositors that I uh, worked with, they had a, a, an amazing art background, like painters and so on. Um, and, and obviously that, that crosses over to map paintings. And so the world of visual effects, those people who, who do uh, digital map paintings, you know, mm-hmm. they're not only rendering it from, you know, painting in the computer, but they're taking photographs and manipulating them, and they're adding, you know, the ability to put it in a 3D space, and then, you know, they can create the illusion of death. I'm sorry, the illusion of <laughs> death. The illusion of death uh, with their, their ability to, um, to paint it correctly or just to fine-tune the, mm-hmm. uh, the look. So I know that, you know, even in the game world when you guys are developing environments, just like sort of the sleight-of-hand tricks, you know, just like some, some visual effects ideas of how to create the illusion of depth with, uh, with almost basically just planes or 2D, 2D planes, you know. Yeah, you definitely are. I mean, you definitely are limited. It's it's that's kind of where, like I said, if if a modeler's pure job is to model, then it's not always necessary that they can be able to draw. You know, they can still they can still see the information and translate it onto the screen. Um, but that's kind of the, where their scope is limited. And yeah. Whereas you get someone who can draw and they can do more compositional pieces. They can help troubleshoot areas that you know someone who isn't really trained traditionally or have that same sense of lighting and composition to kind of branch out and do other things or to even help set up scenes or um, maybe depending, you know, since lighting is all handled by the engine most of the case now, Mm -hmm. um, there's very little to no lighting actually hand-painted in the textures. That kind of skill set isn't as necessary. Interesting. So. Yeah, and... um... But sometimes, like, uh, I remember, the, you know, they had a, like, sometimes the programs are, would be limited. So if you had a good artist that could sort of work with those limitations, they could use their art skills to sort of um, kind of mask that sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. on certain games. But it's interesting to see the changes. So where, do you, where have you seen, from where we started in the game world, um, you know, pre-PlayStation 1 launch and, you know, sort of the... The tail end of uh, Super Nintendo and Sega Genesis um, to where we are now, like, and where do you think games are going in the future? You know, it's it's tough. It's it's funny that games have kind of reverted back to the old days. You know, like you mentioned before, with with uh, the app games, with app games on you know not only just portable devices like telf or you know uh, cell phones, but uh, with tablet all the tablets, with all the tablet PCs now. I mean, oh yeah, you know, that's true. You, you know, tablet PCs are are kind of the next craze, and the actual graphical prowess of these things, even on my iPhone, I mean, it's the equivalent of the PlayStation One, PlayStation Two, and it's probably closer to PlayStation Two. It's quite, you know, mind-boggling what you can do now. These things, um, games are getting to the point where they're they're at a point of no return as far as profit versus costs you know i mean they're the reason why the trend of games has gone towards microtransactions which is why we're doing the free-to-play you know right um 
Well, let's explain that. So the the business model for Firefall uh, is microtransactions. Microtransactions. So the game is free to play. And if you so choose, you could play it for free forever, you know. So it, there's no pressure uh, in having to spend any money to actually try the game out. But, uh, you know, people always ask, well, how do you plan on making money? And the current business model that is growing very rapidly uh, is the microtransaction-based model. So we're not limiting any of our content like some games in the past have done. Um, where they give it to you for free, but, oh, you can't actually play most of the classes or you can't actually explore most of the world because you have to pay us a uh, $5 a month fee or $10 a month fee or what have you. Um, we're not doing that. We're not limiting content. We're not selling power, so players can't basically buy their way to the top. Um, you know, we want to offer things that are are things that players would want to, you know, use to either embellish their characters' uh, visuals so, you know, purchasing different colors to help tint your armor or purchasing different hairdos, um, things like that. But the, the real thing is with our resource collection in our game, um, you know, it'll come down to things like time savers. Anything that can save you time is generally worth the money to put into it. Mm. Um, you know, we don't really, we haven't really announced kind of what we're going to have for sale or how things are going to work. Um, and... To be honest with you, you know, everything could change, you know, later on. Yeah. You know, these are just kind of things that we've thrown out as ideas. So uh, the one thing, though, that we are going to hold true to is not selling power items and, you know, not uh, barring any sort of content. And that's something that people can definitely, you know. Because that, that happened in the past. I mean, there was a time where people were uh, putting on eBay um, sort of their, like, their characters or... or I forget which games it was, but they, they could actually purchase, like I said, PowerPoints without really necessarily playing the game or earning it. They could just buy their way to the top, and then some of them would turn around and just sell that, like on eBay or whatever they've done. Mm-hmm. It's, it was interesting. It was like the first of its kind where a virtual character or virtual character strength was sold as real commerce, you know, right. in the real world of e-commerce. It's funny to talk about the microtransactions because, you know... My daughter plays, uh, like, C- Club Penguin, Moshi Monsters, uh, Fantage, and, you know, and those games, I mean, those sites that she plays, she can play for free for a, a long time, and then she comes to us all the time, hey, can I get this, you know, can mm-hmm. I get this for a month, please? And then you end up spending, like, five, six bucks and nine bucks for a month just so she can have a more extensive membership. <laughs> and then... Um, and the ones that she plays, the, the the infrastructure and the game, the game world is really well done. And some of the other ones I remember that were really based off a toy line, and you could tell they were just pushing out like they needed to have some sort of online premise. When she was younger, she was like on Barbie.com and like um, like Webkins was like that. So Webkins, you would buy these stuffed animals. They have a code, and you go into the online and you would try it. And I can't tell you how many times like. Barbie would crash or Webkins would have some problems and you could totally tell that they um, they were just pushing you know their toy line and they just needed to have some sort of online premise but they really weren't focused on the quality of their online presence as mm-hmm. opposed to Club Penguin which apparently was made by like a few dads that were in the industry hmm. they made it on their own 
and they got it, you know, so they had a solid base, and they did so well that Disney just came in and bought them. I don't know how much. It was some some ridiculous amount of money they bought them for. Wow. So it was like, you know, several, several hundreds of millions or something like that. And then, so they, you know, actually, your wife might know. No, she's not going to talk? You're not going to talk? No, no, anything. Okay. <laughs> so. Night. Night. Close door, please. Oh, no, okay. Come on, Cody. Cody. Cody, go to bed. You can move. <laughs> He's old. He's <laughs> tired. Anyway, so, um, yeah, Clem Penguin, you know, Disney bought them, and then they can... So they bought them, and they sold for, like, whatever, hundreds of millions of dollars, and then they um, they keep going, you know? Like, they're still running the show, you know, but they just have the Disney tag on it. And then they turn around, and they start making merchandise, the same thing with uh, this English company in uh, England, um, uh, Moshi Monsters. You know, Jillian, you know, just loves it. So, but, you know, they didn't have any merchandise. So, um, it was interesting how that, how that business model evolved because they were sort of in the, in the, the long tail game where they built their audience, they, they built their, their, their consumer base. And then, and then they started to roll out sort of the merchandise and the ancillary uh, products. So it would be interesting to see, um, yeah, what the future is. Yeah, I mean, right now that is the trend. You know, the, the trend five, six years ago, obviously, well, I guess it would be closer to ten years now, um, with MMOs in particular was the monthly transaction fee, the $10 a month to play. Right. Um, but, you know, the, the problem that people saw with that was that you didn't know if the game was going to be any good. You may get the game for a month for free uh, without having to pay, but you've already paid the $50, $60 to buy the box. Oh, And right. so you're st- you know, your investment is still lost because you got a game that you weren't really happy with, and now there's really nothing you can do about it because you can't play it without paying the monthly free. Right. And there's a nasty one for a while. Like um, when my daughter was on uh, Disney... Uh, she was on like Pixie Hollow, so she we signed up for like one month, you know. Mm-hmm. But we didn't know when the fine print was like it was like automatic payment. So we would look at our credit card lately, and we're like, wait, what the hell's this, you know? And so they were like automatically, you know, charging your mm-hmm. account, and so that was really just, you know, um, almost like too tricky, you know. And that we, that's just sort of like bad business. Mm-hmm. So that kind of, I think, went to the wayside. I don't know if they've changed their policy since then, but it makes you go, you know, I'm not coming back. So we never, you know, opted to pay again for the for their for for their site. But um, yeah, it is interesting to see, um, like, just all the changes. Yeah, I mean, as far as the future goes, you know, microtransactions are kind of today's thing. But what I was uh, mentioning before was just that the cost of games is starting to uh, outgrow the returns for most people. I mean, it's a very small percentage of games that actually are highly profitable um, or profitable at all. And, you know, when you talk about the average number of people to make a game, which is 100, 200, going from what we used to make games at, at, uh, you know, I was on a team of six people at one point, uh, up to 12 or 15 people. And that was being sold. It's funny though, if we think back way back when we were playing Atari, we were we were buying ET, that crappy game, for like mm-hmm. they were being sold for sixty bucks, fifty bucks even back then. Yep. The it's, thing is, is that the, the sale numbers don't change. Um, so the same baseball game that I worked on, you know, back in you know ninety nine or ninety eight. 
you know, you sell 500,000 copies of that with a team of nine people, yet current model today on PlayStation 3 sells 500,000 copies with 100 people or 80 people. And it's like, okay, so... The profit margins yeah, are smaller. Everything yeah. is smaller. Yeah, I remember that. So so now you have the biggest trend right now besides microtransactions is also downloadable content on consoles. Uh, you look at downloadable content, and here's like a $5, 10 $15 game you can get online uh, or you know on Xbox Live Marketplace or PS3. Um, and they're shorter but still fulfilling games that you know are fun to play. And like you said, it goes back to gameplay. These are games that are, are designed well, and they're a lot of fun to play and only took, you know, three people to make so and then and then the the actual cost of what used to be the packaging and the distribution of the actual discs are no longer um relevant and because they cost so much which is probably why netflix said you know what Mm -hmm. we're gonna cut our ties with the dvd um expense so if you're gonna want it you're gonna have to pay it when they you know now that they split their prices mm-hmm. you know because I think they're they're hoping that everybody just goes um, streaming because obviously that must be a higher profit margin for them so well hopefully as long as they can actually get the current movies online you know online fast enough because sometimes you have to wait quite a while before they do well yeah streaming. It, it was that's the problem with their DVDs too I mean you still have to wait like a month two months before the new releases are even available on DVD so and um so it'll be interesting to see. And, they, you know, they don't control, um, you know, sort of the, the licensing. I mean, they, they have like a short-term licensing with the studios. So it's, <laughs> you know, so it's one time you have like these movies available and the next time you don't. And so they're constantly going back and forth in the negotiation with the studios of what library they can, they can control, you know. Hmm. And so now that Netflix is, there, uh, looks like they're producing some of their um, some new show of their own. So they're going to be producing their own content, which turned off like like Showtime or something because they're like, oh, then you're competing with us. So they kind of played more hardball in terms of the uh, licensing contracts. And I don't know for the consumer, it's just just more of a mess, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see what happens there. But anyway, it's almost an hour into the interview. Which is, I try to make this show an hour, and uh, I was hoping be, uh, I would insult you more, but I didn't, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, I'll be back in uh, Portland uh, tomorrow night. Um, you're going to Comic-Con tomorrow? I will be at Comic-Con tomorrow, and uh, both on business and pleasure, so it'll be fun. Ah, uh, the Comic-Con. I remember the days when I used to go there and there was, like, hardly anybody there. Yeah, when it, when it was purely comics, it's it's actually when they incorporated uh, video games into it, it kind of blew up. So Or movies. Once the once they got all the marketing dudes with their movies, then, then it just became ridiculous. Because it's funny, because if you go there now, if you go to the main floor, if you go to the far end where all the private dealers are, it still doesn't, it still feels kind of small. Yeah. You know? And if you go to Artist Alley, where that was the greatest thing, because you could meet all your favorite artists. Uh, I remember getting a chance to meet a lot of the original uh, Disney animators back, you know, way mm-hmm. back when. Uh, and you had an opportunity to meet them and get autographs, and it was, uh, you know, um, much more personable. But th- that stuff still exists on the sides. It's like all the stuff that's in the middle of the convention hall. Um, it's just all the, all the marketing like overload you know yep and um 
so and then then if you have like a uh, a special talk by some of your favorite actors or, or writers or directors, I mean the wait to get in those halls are just you know ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's I've never done any of them because of that. Although I am planning on attending one of the panels uh, tomorrow, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. Well, you know we didn't actually real quick we didn't get into. What uh, Firefall, you have a deal with a, a certain comic book company and a certain artist, uh, a mm-hmm. team of artists and, and, and writer. If you want to just expound upon that real quick. Yeah, so Firefall, um, you know, one of the things we we wanted to push in the game as well was the story element of it. And, you know, the story is what's going to help keep it going and uh, allow the universe to expand um, the way we'd like it to. Uh, we, we recently signed on... Um, an award-winning sci-fi author, uh, Orson Scott Card, and he'll be doing um, the writing, actually he'll be writing with his daughter, Emily Card, uh, doing a manga novel for us uh, based on Firefall Universe. Back up, so again, this is for for the layman for us, like Mm -hmm. uh, Orson Scott Card, Mm -hmm. he, um, I'll put some more links up on the site of like, what he's done to kind of get perspective, you know, of, of, so he's, yeah. So he's most, he's most famous for the Ender's game saga oh, okay. uh, or the Ender's saga. And it's, uh, you know, it's actually uh, a really well-written book. Uh, I've only read the first of the, the series, mm-hmm. um, but, but that famous, is, that, that's what that he's famous na- for. Yeah. That yeah. name I've, you know, for people that probably not in the circle have probably heard that like at, you know, on Borders or or, mm-hmm. or Barnes and Noble or something, you've heard that before. And he's you mentioned he and his daughter are writing the the manga. So what yeah, is, so what is that style for? Like you know, so for the layman, like uh, manga is is essentially kind of the Asian comic book. Um, you know, instead of your your traditional like twenty two page comic books that you see that we do here from like Image or Wildstorm or Marvel or DC. Um, you know, they tend to be larger bound, uh, you know, generally black and white, um, comic books that are, are more Asian influence. Uh, so do you read them from back to backwards? Of some you do, some you don't. It just depends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying, I forget which ones of this. <laughs> yeah. Generally they do. Generally they, generally you read them from, from right to left as opposed to left to right. Um, but, uh, you know, you know, calling it a manga, it's really, it's not even really highly accurate. It's, Udon Comics is the studio that we signed on to to do the artwork for us. Um, so I'm really excited about that because they're a company I've followed for a long time. Uh, what, what, do you know what are the comic books they've done? The series that they've done? That yeah, I mean, they're heard. probably most popular for their Street Fighter comic books. Uh, they've done Street Fighter, Darkstalkers, pretty much anything that Capcom is involved with. Um They've done the comic book translation for it. Uh, you know, they're they're very they're actually one of the influences that kind of helped bring our style together uh, because they were so successful with Street Fighter, and Street Fighter has a very stylized look that is something that does appeal globally to not only the Western but the Eastern market as well. Um, so that art style was something that we thought uh, was really kind of honing in on what we were trying to go for for Firefall. Um, now the only thing when you say Street Fighter, for me the only thing that I can remember is you 
as a kid, always at the arcade playing Street Fighter, <laughs> and having go- and you were actually entering Street Fighter tournaments, like um, gaming tournaments, and that's uh, and that was my only world being exposed to it because you were so obsessed with it. Yep. But then the then, you know, you, you know our other brother, you know, we were both concerned because like, man, he plays that game way too much. He's at the arcade too much, and then somehow, some after some stinking contest. You came home with a hot blonde that some cute blonde that you met with like a girlfriend and we're asking like where'd you meet her at the street fighter contest <laughs> i was like what <laughs> like, how is that so my perspective of what street fighter is <laughs> is that you actually had some groupies <laughs> anyway so that was hilarious <laughs> but so, uh, yeah i mean you know street fighter is something i've followed for a long time as you know well that's um, a huge like cult following, you know, it's, yep. it's it's lore in the uh, video game world. So that's yeah, too funny. The, I mean, part of its revival is, is thanks to some of the comic book work that John's done. I mean, I'm really excited about working with them. Um, Joe Ng is going to be doing the artwork for us during the uh, uh, the pencils, inks, and. Uh, Are you meeting with these guys tomorrow at uh, Comic? I am. That's part of the business trip I'm making to Comic Con. Um, I'll be meeting with uh, Eric Co. Uh, Joe and uh, Jim uh, from Udon Comics, and uh, really excited about that because I haven't actually met any of them in person. <laughs> oh, cool! Well, then I'll make sure I put a link up. Like I said, I have no idea if anybody's gonna follow me on this thing, but maybe, maybe by chance somebody does, and they're like, oh, check out this game, cool. Yep. So as they're following me, stumble and bumble my way up in the Northwest, and also. I didn't really tell anybody on this thing, but, um, you know, I'm, I just uh, started work down here in San Diego because my old employer hired me back to do telecommuting. So I'll be in San Diego like one week every month and then back up in Portland working up there. Um, but I continue to do this podcast and continue with my projects. But hopefully people will follow us. Um, hopefully they'll follow you on your endeavors. And obviously Red 5 has their forum and ways mm-hmm. to follow you guys you have your own blog and everything like that so i'll make sure that people have an opportunity to check it out um as for me i probably won't be as prominent as or prolific with any projects i have <laughs> so <laughs> so we'll that. see <laughs> we'll see but um i think that's about it for tonight's show uh, it's late i gotta get uh, to sleep because gotta get to work in the morning and then i gotta fly out uh tomorrow night um and i'll be back but then i'm back in san diego uh the first week of august again so uh, now maybe at that point i gotta figure out who else i gotta interview i might have to interview my buddy who's an actor and a photographer so <laughs> we'll see well thanks again um have a good night and look for um, Adam McMahon and his um, Red Five Studios and Firefall coming out um, hopefully soon. And uh, yeah, have a good yeah. one. And if you're in the uh, Seattle area during August twenty seventh, twenty eighth, whatever, come see us at PAX. PAX. What does PAX stand for? PAX stands for Penny Arcade Expo. Penny Arcade Expo up in Seattle at the end of August. Well, maybe I'll have to drive up there and check it yeah. out. Good times, so. good food. It's only like two and a half hours from Portland, so that's nothing. That's like a drive to LA or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So maybe we'll check it out. Cool. All right. Have a good one. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.